Welcome to Energy Central's Power Perspectives, a podcast where based on member readership, we interview the most popular and engaging topics found on Energy Central. The Power Perspectives podcast connects you to contributing members who have submitted thought-provoking content. I'm your host, Jason Price of West Monroe Partners and Energy Central's Community Ambassador, based in New York City. I'm joined by my colleague in Orlando, Matt Chester, producer and community manager for Energy Central. Hi, Matt. Hi, Jason. Uh, really excited to be with you once again as we continue with our Power Perspectives podcast. Uh, I know this episode in particular is going to be a fantastic one, both because of the guest and because of the the important and, and timely topic we're going to talk about. And I, I can't wait to dive in. So let's get to it. Agreed. Since 1995, Energy Central has been a trusted news and information source for professionals working in the power industry. Today, Energy Central is more than just a news source. Energy Central is a network of community groups focused on specific topics in the industry. Our managed communities are a place where professionals like you can come together to share, learn, and connect in a collaborative environment. We invite you to become a member, if you haven't already, and join 200,000 other professionals working in the power industry. Visit www.energycentral.com, and membership is free. California is the most populous state with nearly 40 million residents. It has the fifth largest economy in the world and is home to sunshine, celebrities, and the mighty Silicon Valley. In recent years, this beautiful state overlooking the Pacific has suffered tremendously due to a combination of climate change and an antiquated energy infrastructure. The Northern California dry season has grown longer. Forest and wildfires have gripped the region leading to more intense devastation. Sparks from power lines caused the devastating campfire of 2018 that led to at least 63 deaths, destroying more than 12,000 homes and scorched over 142,000 acres, four times the size of San Francisco. Counting back to 2017, the wildfires in California and other Western states have caused approximately $24.5 billion in damage. The players in this complex and intractable situation are straight out of a Shakespearean tragedy. We have the utilities, namely PG&E, culpable for not maintaining tree lines and general mismanagement. The state of California, at times severely unprepared and understaffed to manage wildfires and general land maintenance. A popular California governor who is at severe odds with the utility and pushing for takeover of PG&E and millions of Californians at the mercy of climate change and strained by its aftermath. California residents today in Central and Northern California shoulder the pain enduring loss of land and life, rolling blackouts, some of the highest utility rates in the country, and an uncertain and precarious future living in the state. If there is a silver lining in this tragedy, as of December 19th, Governor Newsom signed into law a path forward to compensate those who lost property and wage a bankruptcy plan with the restructure of PG&E, and further protections for the sister investor-owned utilities in California. Governor Newsom and the California Public Utility Commission seem to have temporarily stabilized the patient in prepping PG&E for major surgery in the upcoming year. What I've laid out is the most outer layer of the onion. Inside is a complex and convoluted situation that only a true insider could explain. I'm here today speaking to John Benson, a resident of California, and a 40-year veteran of the energy industry. John is one of the most admired members of the Energy Central community. 
He has more than 180,000 views of his content, has added 83 posts, and has stayed engaged with members posting over 90 comments. I'll get to his day job in a moment, but if you follow his work on Energy Central, you'll see his main position papers written voluntarily on the California crisis. He has skillfully broken down the complexities into tangible nuggets that I encourage all of you to read. He has even provided a brief capsule of a path forward, which he will talk about today. John Benson, welcome to Energy Central's Power Perspective. Thank you very much for the kind words. Uh, I appreciate them. John currently serves as senior consultant for Microgrid Labs, where he develops, plans, and designs microgrid projects. He has seen it all from an engineering perspective, from electric utility control systems, AMI projects, and commercial and industrial microgrids. He has led a distinguished career at various companies, including Siemens, where he helped pioneer many of their advanced energy control systems, and throughout his career has worked closely with PG&E. John, I want to start with your position papers published on Energy Central. The voice is both a frustration and optimism. What compelled you to write these papers? And can you share briefly with us the meat of the matter going on in California? California has always had wildfires, and we have some of the most advanced firefighting capabilities in the world. But climate change has really uh, thrown us several major challenges. Even before these challenges, we had some unusual weather patterns uh, with little to no rain in the summer to fall, followed by a wet season in winter to spring. We also have occasional droughts that frequently last for several years. We have high dry wind events, uh, no moisture associated with those, just high temperature dry winds, but they're near hurricane force. And this was our normal pattern. Climate change has increased the frequency of the droughts and the high wind events have become more frequent also. Most importantly, it has increased the duration of our dry season by a couple of months. Thus, the vegetation is drier in October and November. This especially applies to bushland and the foothills of many of our mountain ranges. In California, we call the bushland chaparral. These are around the edges of Napa, Sonoma, and other coastal valleys, and also the Sierra Nevada foothills. The worst wildfire occur in the chaparral. Also, with a large population in Northern California, many retirees uh, choose to live in these areas. The explosive nature of these wildfires, there is frequently inadequate time to evacuate. In 2019, CAL FIRE started mass evacuations in early in the path of, a, of the Kincaid fire, which would become huge before it was all over with. And there was no loss of life in spite of its huge size. Over 77,000 acres burned with 374 structures destroyed. PG&E also used a, what's called a public safety power shutoff here. That didn't work out as well. It was a nice attempt, but their transmission line, they, they couldn't deactivate a large transmission line going through there. And that's ultimately what people currently believe it started this fire, okay? As a side note, major wildfires started in Southern California in 2007, and San Diego Gas and Electric went through a smaller, less traumatic version of what PG&E is going through now. PG&E is a neighboring utility down there. It covers a large portion of the LA area. And they learned 
from these uh, from what happened to San Diego Gas and Electric, and started beefing up their their resiliency shortly thereafter. At this point, I, I think PG&E probably thought this was a Southern California thing. They were wrong. John, let's talk about California legislation AB 1054. For our listeners not in California, what is the significance of AB 1054? And as a follow-up, why has so far only PG&E faced the kind of trouble that has ev- evaded San Diego Gas and Electric and Southern California Edison Company? Yes, the three major investor-owned utilities are PG&E, San Diego Gas and Electric, and Southern California Edison. And AB 1054 was specifically targeted at them. What it does is it establishes a $21 billion wildfire fund that power companies can use to help offset their wildfire liabilities, but only if they receive a safety certification from the state. And the safety certification is new, by the way. Additionally, the companies would have to tie executive compensation to safety performance, establish a safety wildfire committee on each of their board of directors and meet other financial and safety measures that they need to take. If a utility meets these conditions, it will be able to withdraw funds to cover liabilities they face under the state's inverse condemnation legal doctrine. Inverse condemnation holds public utilities responsible for fires caused by their equipment even if they were following all of the safety rules and regulations. San Diego Gas and Electric, Southern California, and probably eventually PG&E would pay $10.5 billion uh, through an initial and uh, periodic payments thereafter into this fund, while ratepayers would fund the other $10.5 billion And this is done in a fairly painless fashion. It's done by extending a bond, which was originally issued to fund the Department of Water Resources, some of their expansions, and was set to expire. Uh, I don't know exactly when it expires, but either shortly or it's already expired. It's $2.50 a month to each of the three IOUs rate pairs, and will stay in effect under AB 1054. Note that there have been a lot of other bills. Once uh, 1054 was passed in 2018, actually, I believe, and and thereafter, there a number of other bills, a number meaning, I think 13 is the number that actually impacts wildfires and uh, investor-owned utilities, and potentially some some of the other big utilities in California. But there have been a lot of bills that were passed and signed into law this fall, uh, fall of 2019. Uh, they have put much tighter regulations in place to assure California investor-owned utilities improve their resiliency. And this includes independent audits, audits of their maintenance and vegetation management practices by independent experts. San Diego Gas and Electric has been through their major wildfires. Southern California Edison learned from their experience. PG&E for a long time has had issues with vegetation management and equipment maintenance. With these new bills that California government has passed, it is hoped these issues will be something from the past. 
John, I'm glad that the uh, political landscape surrounding this came up because I'm curious to ask you about the extent it might play a factor in the situation. You know, California is is unique and known for being typically progressive in its nature, and, and that's especially true when it comes to the world of energy. So, do you think in in these various bills and and you know the uh, inverse condemnation background, you know, what did, did the political nature of California in any way set the stage for this scenario or is is california dealing with this really just because of a factor of its geography and its natural resources and you know the fact that wildfires are more likely to happen there than elsewhere in the country uh actually the political situation in california is is unique but not probably not in the way you think we're basically a one-party state the republican party has pretty much ceased to exist in california the Democrats control the government, the uh, governor's um, seat, and also both parties, both uh, houses of Congress in California. And it, they usually have a supermajority in Congress, okay? And thus, um, issues like this do not become a political football. The government quick, quickly reaches a consensus on what needs to be done and goes for it, okay? They tend to be very progressive on finding solutions to problems. Don't always work out, but they uh, they continue to try until they get things right. Okay, and I think that's that's one of the unique things that I really like about California. It's is the positive attitude of our government and the willingness to uh, try to correct things that are wrong rather than engaging in political fights. Great, thank you for that. Uh, John, you cover a plan where PG&E footprint could be absorbed by many of the surrounding municipal utilities. How viable is such an approach for the many neighboring munis? What could PG&E look like after such a move? Well, this changes on a week-to-week basis now. Um, But based on the latest events uh, on this battle, and I posted on this frequently, and I, I keep collecting information and probably another post or two in the future. But based on the latest events, I don't believe this will happen to a large degree. However, I still believe PG&E will be encouraged to negotiate a reasonable deal with the city of San Francisco to sell its T&D assets to the city, to San Francisco's uh, Utility Commission. I posted a paper on this. It's a complicated issue. PG&E in the city of San Francisco has been fighting for over 100 years. And of course, San Francisco is where PG&E's headquarters are. So it's kind of ironic. The, the name of the paper is New Slash Old Major Municipal Utility. And I posted it in early December for Energy Central members who want to access uh, this paper. It explains it in, in this uh, battle and the negotiations between San Francisco and PG&E. It also lists the possibilities for other municipals, and also we have what's called irrigation districts out here, which are, are mainly public utility districts. The possibility of some of these absorbing small parts of PG&E's footprint, but I think the law outside of San Francisco, which is a sizable portion of PG&E's footprint, Although, although not as large as you might think. Um, San Francisco is a very small area if you were to look at a map. And PG&E has a huge, huge service area. 
more than 300 miles from north to south. I think PG&E will emerge from this pretty much the utility you have now, perhaps less the city of San Francisco's TND assets. For our listeners, I'll make sure to link that uh, new old major municipal utility paper you mentioned, John, in the episode notes. So you'll be able to okay. access that quickly. Okay, very good. Thank you. Great. All our listeners are aware of what's going on in California, especially from a renewable standpoint. Uh, John, you know, you know, alternative energy for renewables, battery storage, and now there's major discussions about utility-scale investments in microgrids. You know, microgrids require a considerable amount of um, investment, uh, significant regulatory approvals and planning. Plus, microgrids also are typically powered with some form of cogeneration, which includes both a renewable and a fossil fuel. Uh, given your experience in the microgrid design and development process, what is your opinion of this plan? And give us a timeline that this that this could even get accomplished in California. Well, I'm not going to voice an opinion on how cost effective it is, but the price of the components of microgrid and also the microgrid controllers is it's coming down as rapidly as uh, the rest of renewable technology. So it's uh, it could be cost effective. But I believe PG&E's intent with the 20 microgrids they have proposed is to power the distribution systems only during uh, public safety power shutoff events. This would allow them to de-energize long segments of transmission and sub-transmission that power these wildfire susceptible areas in Chaparral and also the mountainous areas above them. Large parts of uh, of the the mountain ranges in California only have radial feeds. In other words, uh, transmission and sub-transmission lines that feed them only go up one pathway. And if they de-energize those, uh, it won't just shut off the area like in the foothills that are most susceptible to wildfires, but also up in the mountains above them. And that that becomes a problem. I have a home in the mountains, so uh, I've experienced this firsthand. And um, the ability to put microgrids to power these communities that will be shut off by shutting down the transmission of these radial feeds from transmission system, it's a viable plan. I don't know how cost effective it'll be because it'll only be used maybe five to 10 times a year maximum. And otherwise, they'll get power mainly from PG&E. Now, the designs of these microgrids will likely include large battery battery energy storage systems, BESS, as we tend to use an acronym for them, uh, large photovoltaic arrays. Most of California, including this this area, has excellent uh, solar insulation, and these arrays will work very well to keep the, uh, the battery energy storage systems charged and also probably a a propane fuel backup generation system to uh, in case for some reason they have clouds. Clouds and public safety power shutoffs are kind of mutually exclusive. Uh, And I'm not going into the meteorological reasons why, but uh, in case, for instance, the winds, the the dry winds trip, uh, trip out a photovoltaic array or something, 
the backup generation can take over before the uh, battery energy storage system is exhausted. Cogeneration is not planned or not needed. Um, it's still very warm when the, when the conditions leading to power, public safety power shutoffs occur. So cogeneration is really uh, not needed in, in this particular application, although in some microgrids it's an important part of the design. Okay, but to clarify, are you saying that the utilities will make these microgrid investments and only use these assets when they run a planned blackout or some kind of a controlled blackout to mitigate the duration of the time that the grid is down? Do you understand yes, that correctly? Let me explain why. Okay. okay. Please do. Um, the... Um, <laughs> In my community, the community where I have a home up in the Sierra Nevada mountains, um, I've talked to some of the people in our community. When they have a blackout, unless the large businesses, large grocery stores, large uh, restaurants and so forth, unless they buy into having backup generation to power their, um, to provide alternative power, uh, during these these public safety the PSPS events, public safety power shutoff events, they will lose huge amounts of perishable foods and huge meaning in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. PG&E is strongly being being encouraged to reimburse them for those losses, and uh, it's it's potentially uh, because PG&E has publicly stated that these PSPS events will continue in decreasing numbers for probably 10 years, but uh, that's something they don't want to deal with. That's why they want to maintain power. They want to continue to, even in the PSPS events, they want to continue to power distribution systems where they can reasonably continue to do so without sparking a wildfire. Um, and it, I think they're also very concerned about uh, these large businesses putting their own uh, what we call solar or photovoltaic plus storage systems in place, in which case they would draw a lot much, much less power from the PG&E grid year round, okay? <laughs> Not just during the PSPS events, okay? And that's something PG&E wants to kind of discourage. So that's, I think, one of the, the reasons behind these 20 microgrids they're proposing. Understood. Thank you for that. I would say from a cost-benefit standpoint, it's probably less expensive in the long run to build a microgrid than to buy everyone at their own um, personal generator. Would that be correct? Right. A little bit less expensive. Um, but the, this is getting, these are getting to be um, the solar, the, the photovoltaic plus storage are getting to be standard products now. Um, yeah. Tesla makes uh, one um, or several different designs they actually have. And of course, Tesla is also has a solar division now. So uh, I'm sure Tesla can come up with, with a good solution for these people that isn't terribly expensive. And the payback is getting to the point to where it's reasonable now, even if you ignore the, the PSPS events, okay? And adding those in and adding the loss of uh, perishable goods, it suddenly becomes not just reasonable it becomes almost mandatory i've had discussions with with uh, some people in the area where i have a home and 
they're seriously considering this, although they understand that these high wind events won't happen again until next fall. So they're not, uh, they're not too concerned about them right now. But if PG&E doesn't implement these microgrids, and their, their time goal is to have them done by uh, September of uh, this year, uh, of 2020. And uh, if they don't have them done, I think they're, they're pretty well convinced that they're going to be facing people that'll, that will reduce the amount of PG&E power they use by a great amount, uh, both residences, and small businesses, and large businesses in these areas. And they'll basically effectively lose this uh, area from their grid. Thank you, John. This is very informative. On behalf of the entire Energy Central community, I want to thank you for taking time to share your knowledge and insight on this pressing topic. You can read more and connect with John directly through energycentral.com. I also want to thank our contributing partners of Energy Central. ESRI, the Environmental System Research Institute. ESRI is an international supplier of geographic information system GIS software, web GIS, and geodatabase management applications. To Navigant Research, a premier market research and advisory firm covering the global energy transformation. To Oracle Utilities, providing best-in-class utilities management solutions to improve reliability, service, and safety for electric, water, and natural gas companies. Atonix Digital, a Black & Veatch company, Atonix Digital software helps companies simplify asset performance management by putting data to work to detect emerging risks, enhance efficiency, improve accuracy of planning, and provide an easily adjustifiable last return on investment. Bentley Systems, a software development company that supports the professional needs of those responsible for creating and managing the world's infrastructure projects. Once again, I'm your host, Jason Price. Stay plugged into the discussion by hopping into the Energy Central community at energycentral.com. And see you next time at Energy Central Power Perspectives Podcast. <laughs>